0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. So today, like I said, we have my very, very, very dear and close friend from Portland. He's a pastor of a church called a Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon. Um, I've, I've spoken there. He's, he's been here before. Um, and teaching and I've, I have asked him to come and it's in the middle of our emotional uh, Emo Church series and uh, I, I really wanted his teaching when I invited him to be almost a reprieve from Emo Church because it's been so intense. But he lovingly has weaved in kind of what we've been talking about into a teaching on, on well I'll let him share. So, uh, so would you please welcome uh, my friend John Mark Comer. Thanks buddy, thank you. Hi. Good morning. Great to see all of you. What is it, like 72 degrees outside? This is fan. You take this for granted. Stop it. It's fan-freaking-tastic. So really great to be here. And uh, I love your pastor is amazing. Dave's an incredible friend. Uh, Don't take him for granted either, by the way. Guys with his level of gifting and intelligence and charisma and leadership but also that mixture of humility. Sadly, guys like him are rare, and you're lucky. um, Lucky's not the right word. Blessed to have him and all of your leadership, that I know at least, are amazing. And so, man, yeah, well done for that. So God has put uh, such a love in my heart for Dave, and also for you, and for what God is stirring in this church. And there's a Massive parallel between the church that I'm a part of and, uh, and this one. It feels really, really similar. And you're in a time right now of favor as a church. God's hand is on you. And hardship will come. It's inevitable um, to this church. And that's not to sound like a downer. Rather, that's just to say, enjoy this season that you're in and savor every moment. Those of you in leadership, times of favor can be exhausting. So don't run away with it. Sabbath. And don't get ahead of God's spirit. Just live in the moment as a church and enjoy this and savor this and live from a heart posture of gratitude. And I just love what God is stirring up in your church and in your city. The only downside to living in a city like San Francisco or Portland is you become basically a city snob and you just don't ever want to travel except if it's to about half a dozen cities and that's it. Other than that, you're like, no, I'm okay. Thank you, though. The coffee there is just horrific. And so it's fantastic to wake up and have some four-barrel and not gag on my coffee this morning. So I love your city. I love your church. I love your pastor. And it's great to be here with you again. That said, turning your Bibles to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. um, Just like Dave said, you're in the middle of a series called Emo Church, which is great, by the way. You know you are a church filled with millennials when the word emo is used in a teaching series. Well done on that. And if you were not here for the last month or two, basically, to sum it up, it's a series about becoming an emotionally healthy church, uh, which is based on a book that I read years ago. It's really, really good. And if you weren't here, circle back, download the podcast. It's really great stuff. Uh, I follow along on the podcast a little bit on my runs in the morning, and honestly, the last series was the best series I've heard in years. So don't miss out on that. Now Dave's teaching last weekend was on quote embracing grieving and loss. How we were created for the Garden of Eden and instead we're born into this. And it's a mixed bag. There's good in this world and there's a whole bunch of not so good. And so we're set up from birth for a life uh, that is marked by disappointment. For a life that is less than what we had hoped for. And it's right and fitting. In fact, it's emotionally healthy, end quote, to grieve that. Not just to grieve death, but also to grieve the death of the life or a lifestyle that what you had hoped for. Now, for this weekend, I want to dovetail off of last weekend's teaching. And I want to think about the implications of that reality. Ha, no pun intended. On, um, that was really (laughs) cheesy, Sorry. I want to think about the implications of that for love and marriage, or if you're not married yet, which I'm guessing is a huge chunk of you. My church is about 65 70% single. I'm guessing it's not all that different here. You can't afford to get married in this city anyway. <laughs> Um, for love and marriage and relationships in general. Statistically, even for those of you who are single, 90-plus percent of you will get married, and also statistically sad but true, 40-50 to percent of you will then get a divorce. Now, I know you're followers of Jesus and blah, 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 all of that stuff. But still, uh, I want to get into the why behind all of that. So turn to Genesis 29 if you're not there already. This is a love story, uh, one of many, actually, in the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. This one is about a guy named Jacob, who is the son of Isaac and grandson of, anybody know? You didn't grow up in church, no worries. Abraham, (laughs) minor role in the story of God. Uh, (laughs) Just really, Dave, you need to teach on the Old Testament more, so... (laughs) Wait, didn't you study Genesis like a year ago? Proof that this city is turnover every two years. So anyway, to bring you up to speed, uh, Genesis 29 is about halfway through Jacob's life. And so far, he's had a rough go of it. It's almost like he was set up for failure from birth. For starters, his twin brother, Esau is the first one out of the womb. Now, being a firstborn in the ancient Near East was a huge deal because you would inherit a double portion from your father's estate and you would go on to lead the family, or in this case, the tribe. And Jacob just missed it. I mean, he comes out of the womb, literally, the story says, with his hand wrapped around his brother Esau's leg. So from birth, he's scraping to get ahead and fighting at his station in life. And then to add insult to injury, his parents named him Jacob in Hebrew or Jacob in English, which is a Hebrew idiom meaning heel snatcher. It means heel snatcher, and it's a Hebrew idiom meaning a charlatan or a deceiver or a liar. I mean, thanks mom and dad for that. It's just great setup for life. And sadly, Jacob lives up to his name His story is one lie after another. He deceived his older brother Esau to get the birthright of the firstborn son. Then he deceived his father Isaac to get the blessing. Then a little bit later, he deceived his father-in-law Laban to get the best sheep, if you know that story. And so he's always looking over his shoulder, trying to outrun each mistake, but it doesn't work. In the end, finally, he is deceived. The con artist gets played. It's as if the narrator of Genesis is saying what goes around comes around. And where does Jacob get deceived but in love and in marriage? Um, Jacob in 29 is sent away from Canaan by his mom and his dad uh, in part because his older brother Esau is trying to kill him, which is sibling rivalry at its best but also to get married in his hometown or his grandfather, Abraham's hometown. So we pick up the story. He's right outside his grandfather's village at the well right outside the city. We read this, Genesis 29, 9. While he was still talking with them, uh, the shepherds out by the well, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherd, which I guess was a turn-on back in the day. When Jacob saw, I'm sure a hipster will bring that back really soon, when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. He's a bit of a show-off. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. So it's love at first sight, literally. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said, you are my own flesh and blood. Now keep reading. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, here's where it's interesting. Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Sounds like a cheap novel, right? One man, two sisters. Now, Leah, we read, had weak eyes. That's a Hebrew euphemism, meaning she was ugly. This is in ancient Near East, and uh, a woman would wear a veil all day long. And if you said she had bright eyes, that was a way of saying she was beautiful all over. But if you said she had weak eyes, that was a gracious way of saying she was not all that pretty. But Rachel, her younger sister, on the other hand, we read, quote, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That can be translated was beautiful in form and in face, meaning her face was striking and her body was amazing. And it comes as no surprise, hey, it's in the Bible. I'm just just exegeting. Don't judge me, all right? Take it up with Moses in Genesis, okay? And stay with me for all of you who are angry at me already. Who is this punk? For, that's okay. Just keep reading. <laughs> and it comes as no surprise that the next line we read, Jacob was in love with who? Rachel. Jacob was in love with Rachel. Now there it is, that language that we in the modern world at least hear all the time, in love. As far as I know, this is the one and only time that phrase, in love, is used anywhere in the scriptures. And that's because this is really the one and only story in all of the Bible that bears any resemblance to what we think of as romantic relationships or a modern day love story. Most of the love stories in the scriptures have to do with arranged marriage, which was the norm in that day and age. And so most of the love stories take place after the wedding. This is one of the few that takes place before the wedding where we read that Jacob was in love. And this relationship, this love story, has the two ingredients that we all crave, sexual chemistry electric and ecstatic feelings. Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, end quote. And Jacob was, quote, in love. But ironically, if you know anything about Genesis, which I guess you don't, but that's okay, ironically, the story is a disaster. Keep reading. He goes on and says to Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Rachel. So um, in this day and age, you were expected to pay a bride price to your father-in-law, but Jacob is on the run from his brother. He's flat broke, nothing to offer. So he says, listen, I'll work for you for the better part of a decade in exchange for your daughter's hand in marriage. And then I love it, 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. It's just classic father-in-law, right? Stay <laughs> classic. My father-in-law, when I asked if I could marry his daughter, the first thing he said was Interesting um just awesome (laughs) yeah moving on that's just a painful embracing grieving and loss 20 so jacob served seven years to get rachel and then there i love the next line they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her oh it's just so romantic sounding right so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. It was a wedding party, family, friends, all over the village, all over the region. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When, great wedding gift, here's a slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, for those of you thinking, what in the world? Remember, this is 2000 BC. There's no mood lighting in the tent at night, all right? The odds are Jacob had one too many at the party. We don't know that, but he was not all there. Let's put it that way. And it's not until the sun comes up that it hits Jacob. Oh my gosh, this isn't Rachel. This is her, this is weak eyes, This is her older sister. It's not until the morning that he realizes that the deceiver has been deceived. And then there's this classic line, when morning came, there was Leah. Life's like that, isn't it? I mean, what does that say about the human condition? Right? Seriously, we work and we sweat and we labor and we bleed and we hope and we pray and we anticipate and we look forward to and we wait and finally we get there. We arrive and it's incredible for a night. And then we wake up in the morning and it's Leah. It's weak eyes. It's a letdown, it's a disappointment. It's not all that we had hoped for. Life, at an honest level, is full of letdowns. The human experience is anything but ideal, whatever it is for you. Maybe it's love, or marriage, or sexuality, or romance. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's your job, your career, success, fame, fortune, your company on whatever list. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's college, your graduation, or letters after your name. Maybe it's travel or an experience or beauty. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. But whatever it is, it's only a matter of time until it's Leia because it can't live up to your expectations. Maybe some of your expectations, but definitely not all of your expectations. And nowhere is this more true, honestly, than in marriage. That's what we see in the story right here, and that's what we see in life in general. Marriage will let you down, I promise you. And if you're thinking, who invited this guy? (laughs) Take it up with your leadership. Um, Don't worry, I'm gone next week, all right? And I don't mean that in a downer kind of way. I mean, don't get me wrong at all. Marriage is amazing. My wife Tammy is here somewhere. I don't know where you are, babe, but we got in last night about eight, had a fantastic dinner together, and able to be together with my best friend and laugh. And we're going through a hard time in life right now, and it's so good to walk through that together, shoulder to shoulder. And she's faithful to me and amazing, and that it's fantastic. But it's not heaven on earth. And if you're married, you know that. Don't nod your head. Don't. don't. All right, just inside say, preach it, all right, <laughs> but not outside. And this is, I mean, I love Paul. If you know the writer Paul in the New Testament's prolific, brilliant theologian, I love his one-sentence summary of marriage, quote, those who marry will face many troubles. And then he goes on, he's writing to single people, and he says, and I want to spare you this, and he means spare you marriage, right? So that's just for Paul, but he was inspired by God, so it's a little hard to argue with him. But this is basic math, right? Take one person with problems and issues and, and idealism and a, quote, quirky personality and a skin disorder of weird and add on another person with problems and issues and expectations that are absolutely unrealistic and an overbearing mother-in-law and whatever it is put them together and it does not equal bliss. Like it's basic math, the math adds up to twice as much crud, right? Now because of this, usually, and this is true not only of marriage but life in general, usually we make one of two mistakes. We, we err on one of two sides. Some of us under-desire love and marriage or whatever it is for you, career, job, success, graduation, tr- whatever it is for you. And so we settle. And we're sold into bondage to a life of mediocrity and to the torture of the mundane. We never really live because we're too scared or too safe or too logical or too cynical to really step out and risk any, risk anything. We call ourselves a realist, but we all know that's just, that's just code for a pessimist in denial. We're rarely let down because we're rarely brave enough to risk. Now, this is San Francisco, so I'm guessing that's a minority of you. The rest of us over desire love or marriage or whatever it is for you. And so we risk and we step out and we go for it. You move to San Francisco, who cares if it costs $8 billion a month for 400 square feet? You move there with a dream, with a crazy idea, with whatever it is. We're fueled by this audacious sense that anything is possible. You're the idealist, you're the entrepreneur, you're the explorer, you're the artist, you're the lover. You grow up dreaming about love and marriage and sexuality and romance and all of that stuff. And so then you, we, me, whatever, we put so much pressure on love and romance to fulfill us that it ends up creating a weird sort of pathology in our life. People like this often end up marrying not once, but twice or three or four times, as if every time thinking, I know this time around it'll be different. Not like the last time, or the time before that, or the time before that. But wherever you fall in that spectrum, and some of us migrate from one side to the other throughout life, no matter how hard you try to insulate yourself, it's only a matter of time until you wake up one morning and you're lying next to Leah. Or worse yet, you wake up one morning and you are Leah. I mean, I get the pain of reading. We laugh and it's funny and it kind of is, unless if you don't relate to Jacob, unless if you relate to his bride. Then it's not funny at all. I get how hard this story is to read for all sorts of people, especially for women. I think of the body image issues that women deal with in particular. Men as well, but more women. Um, in this cultural milieu, it's intense. I mean, how many of us, male or female, look like the cacophony of images that we see in the media every day? 1%? I mean, this is California, maybe 2 or 3%. You're all skinny here. It's awesome. Um, see, that was a random, sorry. I, I live in land of beer and rain, and we're not skinny. So, moving on. Um, But how many of us, 1%, 2% of us, maybe on a good day, some of you are skeptical, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you are, and you're thinking, see, listen, this is why I don't trust the Bible. It's chock full of misogyny and sexism and the objectification of women. Yes, absolutely it is, because it's honest, because that's what the world is like today, and it's definitely what the world was like 4,000 years ago not saying this is a good thing at all. In fact, keep reading. The story isn't over. If you skip back down to 28 um, or 26, Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage right before the elder one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. So a wedding back in the day it wasn't a Saturday afternoon. It was a seven-day affair. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife at the end of seven days. Laban gave his servant Bilna to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also. And then this tragic line, his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So now he's in debt and he's working for seven years to pay off his second wife. Now keep reading, it gets better, 31. 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. Pause right there. That is a beautiful line. That's where we see the juxtaposition of how brutal and hard and difficult life on earth is and how good and kind and compassionate the God who made the earth is. If you're here this morning and you relate far more to Leah than you do to Jacob, I just want to say that God sees you. He sees your insecurity. He sees your sense of inadequacy. He sees you. And I love, we read that he saw that Leah was not loved and he enabled her to conceive. But listen to this, Rachel remained childless. Now this is an ironic line. Even in the modern world, and particular, in the ancient world, infertility was not only heartbreaking, but it was a disaster on every level. People flat out at that time thought you were cursed by God. And Rachel, the one that Jacob is in love with, who's beautiful, In form and face, all of that, she is childless. Leah, on the other hand, 32, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Notice she's bitter, angry, resentment, cynicism, She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi, okay, now I'm just the hope, the anticipation mixed with the cynicism. And then in 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So for years, Leah is searching for fulfillment and satisfaction in her marriage to Jacob. But she's not happy. He's not happy. I'm not sure which one's worse, to be married to a woman you don't love or to be married to a man who doesn't love you back. But finally, after years of all of this, she says enough is enough, I'm done. This time I will praise the Lord. And she named her son Judah, which is a Hebrew word meaning praise. This time I will stop searching for fulfillment, I will stop searching for satisfaction in this marriage that is less than what I had hoped for, in this man who is, yeah, enough said about him. But this time I will praise the Lord." And from there the story goes on 30 verse 1 when Jacob saw that she was not bearing I'm sorry when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children she became jealous of her sister now interesting now the beautiful hot young sister is jealous of her older sister so she said to Jacob give me children or I'll die which is a, a bit extreme Jacob became angry with her. Okay, so now the picture perfect romance and she's hot and he's in love. Okay, now they're at each other's throats. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Oh, whoa, you don't drop that. Seriously, if you're in a conversation with your wife about something that is probably one of the most difficult issues for any married couple to deal with, you don't drop that God who has kept you from having children. Then she said, here is Bilna, my servant, sleep with her so that she can bear children from me. I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilna, as a wife, and Jacob slept with her. From here, I'm not going to read it to you because it's gross for the most part. But it's a downward spiral over the next chapter into basically a second century, second millennia BC soap opera. Jacob is sleeping with every woman in sight. Leah is a baby factory in the end with eight sons, not only daughters, eight sons who go on to become eight of the 12 tribes. Rachel is seething with jealousy. Laban, the father in law, is a manipulative jerk. Jacob is a misogynistic pig. And Rachel, this is interesting. Rachel turns out to be a problem. Her character cannot hold a candle to her beauty. If you read the story, she lies, she cheats, she steals, she's an idol worshiper, she's infertile until the very end where God is gracious and she has two children, but not for years and years later. But here's my point. Through all of this, God was at work. This marriage is basically a disaster. To say this family was dysfunctional would be the understatement of the day. But God was at work in this. In fact, God used it. And here's what I mean. Leah um, is never turned into a beauty queen by the wave of a magic wand from a princess somewhere. That's Disney. That's not Genesis or real life. Instead, she has a son, and then another, and then another, eight and whole, and one of her sons was named, as I said, Judah, who goes on to become the father of the tribe of Judah. And from his tribe comes the long line of Jewish kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Joash, Josiah, and then hundreds of years later, one born in a cave outside the village of Bethlehem, Jesus the Messiah meaning out of this train wreck of a marriage, not out of Jacob's love story with Rachel who was beautiful and hot and all of that, no, out of this train wreck of a marriage comes Jesus, comes the embodiment of the God that we know and love, meaning God isn't just in the letdowns. I would argue that God uses the letdowns of life the dreams, the hopes, the fears, the accomplishments, our lack of, even the marriages that don't measure up. Even in a screwed up family with a polygamous marriage that was anything but what God intended in the garden, God was at work in gigantic ways. That's what God is like. In a world that is far less than ideal, God is at work. He uses our mistakes. He uses our misjudgments. I think he uses our bad decisions, not only our good ones. And I would go so far as to say that maybe, just maybe, he even uses our sins. Not only is he with us. Yes, he sees you wherever you're at right now, and he's with you. But not only that, he's at work. He actually uses the letdowns of life. You know, my wife, um, who's here somewhere, I don't know where you are, babe, but there you are, Fantastic. Um, just making sure you're not playing hooky, you know. <laughs> not that I'm a misogynistic pig, but anyway, I'm glad you're here. So my wife and I, uh, you know, we married really young. Uh, we met, I was a freshman in college. It was literally love at first sight. Three weeks in, I remember I said to my roommate, dude, she's it. And he thought, you're an idiot. I said, I know, but I was there. I was ready. At three weeks, let's do this, right? Now, sadly, her parents wanted me to be at least 21 before we got married. Something to do with the law, I don't know. So we got married the first Saturday after my 21st birthday, which, if you know anything about me, that just is symptomatic of a whole bunch of problems and issues in my life. But uh, we got married, really, really dated for two years, got married really young, and at first it was great, but not long into the marriage, you know, we started to realize that we're different people, very different people. So I am introverted, type A, high-strung, get it done. My wife, on the other hand, is nice (laughs) (laughs) and um, uber social laid back, phlegmatic, you know, and, and, and fantastic. But we started driving each other crazy. I remember we were driving uh, in the car, running errands about six months into the marriage, and there was an advertisement for what at the time was this brand new thing that we thought would never work called eHarmony.com. Like, yeah, that'll never work. Internet, give me a break. And, um, and there was this advertisement in the doctor, I forget the guy's name, but you know the famous dude. And his, his punchline was opposites attract and then attack. <laughs> so I just remember we're driving in the car, and it was like, turn off the radio, awkward silence. <laughs> and so, you know, not long into the marriage, um, and this is kind of wearing my heart on my sleeve, uh, but I started having second thoughts. I mean, we were so young. Who knows anything about anything at 21 years old? What were we thinking? Everybody said you're way too young. Psychologically, you're not even self-aware until 22. Then I got married at 21, and a year later, I had my birthday. I'm like, holy crap, what was I? Yes. And and we're way different. And, And yeah, some of that's good, but a bunch of it is frustrating and did we make a mistake did we jump the gun are we right for each other are we not right for each other why don't I feel the way that I used to like we did in the beginning and I uh, I was a wreck but in hindsight my my crisis of faith so to speak was based on a faulty upside down off kilter theology of marriage meaning my marriage was fine of the problem was in my head. I was pinning all of my hopes and fears onto my marriage, putting all this pressure onto Tammy's shoulders to make me happy, to make me feel, and it was crushing and suffocating both of us because marriage was never designed to carry that kind of weight. The problem is that we don't live in the ancient Near East, right? Arranged marriage, for better or for worse, I think for better, is, is no longer the norm, Most of us get married because we're in love, right? Meaning when we're around somebody, we feel happy. We feel high. We feel all this emotion that is positive, right? When we say, I love you, usually what we mean is when I'm around you, you make me feel good about myself. Might as well just say, I'm a narcissist when I'm around you. (laughs) It's the exact same thing, right? So we get married because we're in love and we want to be happy, right, poll, do a poll, walk around on the street of Castro or Mission or wherever the heck we are right now and do a poll this afternoon. Why do you wanna get married? Why do you wanna get married? My guess is well over half will say to be happy. And, And that's not a bad desire to crave and want and look forward to fulfillment and satisfaction in particular with another human being. That's not a bad desire but here's the problem with it. Happiness is not the reason for marriage. It's the result of marriage, at least of a healthy one. If you know anything about kind of the origin of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, God created marriage basically, as I see it, for five reasons. First off, for friendship. It's not good for the man to be alone or the woman. Secondly, for gardening. Um, Adam, that's a metaphor. Adam, (laughs) you're like, you really are from Portland, aren't you? (laughs) Um, Well, yes, true. But Genesis 2, we read that God put human in the garden, quote, to work it and take care of it. Marriage is about so much more than marriage. It's about two people coming together to make something out of God's world. So it's for friendship, it's for guardians, it's for sexuality. You are a sexual being, God created you that way, it's a good thing. And marriage is the God created venue for you to enjoy and express your sexuality with one other person as long as you both shall live. And then family, we read in Genesis one, be fruitful and increase in number. And then, of course, recreation. In the wake of the fall, I think one more is added, and that is to become more like Jesus. And that's why you get married. For a friend, for a partner, for a lover, for a mom or a dad, and to become more like Jesus. But here's the problem. That's not why most of us get married. Most of us get married to be happy. I think this is one of the reasons that we have a staggering divorce rate. One in three first marriages end in divorce. One in two marriages overall end in divorce. That, wherever you come from, that is insane. Why? I think at least in part because if you go into marriage chasing after happiness, all it does is prime you for disillusionment at best and divorce at worst. I cringe when I'm at a wedding and somebody, usually it's the groom, says in front of everybody, I promise to make you happy. I want to stand up. I know this is not romantic. I want to, and I'm a bit cynical. I am, but anyway. I want to stand up in the back and say, take it back. (laughs) Right now in front of God and family and friends, take it back. You can't keep that promise. I don't care how romantic it sounds. You can't keep that promise. You're not God. I don't, yeah. <laughs> Notice that was a married man who said amen to that. That's okay, we're with you, right? You can't. I don't care how charming you are, successful, or beautiful, or handsome, or strong, or smart, or whatever, you can't keep that promise. All right. Yesterday, I was at a wedding yesterday afternoon uh, for one of my good friends who's the worship leader at our church, and he just sat through a teaching where I was kind of harping on happiness and how it's evil and all this stuff. Um, and in his vows, we have this uh, kind of culture at our church where we love to write for a wedding. We love to have people write their own vows. And so in his vows, he said, I know I can't promise to make you happy. But I know you love dogs, and I can promise to always buy you a dog, and that will make you happy. <laughs> So awesome. Uh, I leaned over to Tammy. We were in the back row, and I'm like, that was my influence right there. She's like, yeah, the part about the dogs, that was really romantic. Thank you. It was great. So I had to learn this the hard way, and it was brutal on me, if not even worse, on my wife. But now, um, 12 years in, I have come full circle. And honestly, our marriage has not been easy, right? uh, That book that Dave was talking about, Loveology, it's not a relationship book, like Four Steps to a Great Marriage. I need to read that book, not write it. It's a theology book. It's about how we think from the scriptures in line with the teachings of Jesus about what it means to be man and wife, in particular before you're on that day. And honestly, it's born out of my failure as a husband, my failure in my marriage. But now, even after all kind of the low points, I would not trade what Tammy and I have for the world because it's shaped me into the man I am. I think it's done the same to her, and God has used it in so many ways I can't even begin, and not just the good parts of our marriage. He's used that for sure, but just as much, if not more so, he's used the hard parts of our marriage to make us more like Jesus and to do a whole bunch of other stuff And now, over a decade in, the depth and the texture we have, the capital investment that we have into this thing, listen, I would not trade it for the world. Because it's about marriage, and it's not about marriage at all. Turn over on that note to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Fast forward um, from Jacob and Leah to one of their great-great-great-great-great-grandsons from the line of Judah, the King or the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Mark 12 is right in the middle of a biography about Jacob's descendant, Jesus, and Jesus is teaching, and there's this is really interesting teaching about marriage in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So the Sadducees are an aristocratic, well-off, smart, educated, kind of religious leaders in the capital city in Jerusalem. And they came to him with this obscure text from the Torah. Teacher 19, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Some of you are thinking, I'm glad I do not live in the ancient Near East. Now there were seven brothers. Okay, what comes next is like the mother of all hypothetical situations. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow But he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Uh, You think by about brother number four, they would figure out she's bad news, all right? At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And they're thinking, got ya, right? Jesus, I imagine him rolling his eyes. Seriously, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? That is such a, such a poignant line right there. How often are we in error? Because we don't know the scriptures and we don't know the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither, listen to this, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And Jesus goes on. Notice that to Jesus, marriage, as fantastic as it is, marriage is a stopgap a hold me over until the resurrection of the dead or what Jesus in another spot called the renewal of all things. In the future, when the dead rise and you and I stand in front of God and those of us that have been saved by Jesus, by faith in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, when we step into God's world, this one, but remade under the rulership or the kingship or whatever of God, there won't be any marriage. I have no doubt that my wife and I will know each other and hopefully love each other and I hope and pray spend time together, but we won't be the combers anymore. My left ring finger will be bare. That means that love, marriage, sexuality, romance, all of this, it's all penultimate. At its best, it's nothing more than a shadow of what's coming in the future. Maybe that's why the scriptures start with the wedding of Adam and Eve and then end with the wedding of heaven and earth. In fact, turn over really fast to wrap up to Revelation 22, also known as the last page, all right? (laughs) Revelation 22. um, Have you ever read the last two chapters in the New Testament, uh, which are also the last two chapters in the Bible as a whole, and notice all of the Eden imagery, all the Garden of Eden imagery. For example, it's all over the place, but for example, Revelation 22:1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. This is all flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood, lo and behold, the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, all of this language, I don't have time to parse it all out, but all of this language is straight out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The future world, the one that's on the horizon, that's waiting for all of you who are followers of Jesus. This future world is like the Garden of Eden, but it's even better. It's not just a garden, it's a garden like city. And it's not just Adam and Eve, but it's, quote, every tribe and tongue and nation. And it's not just a man and a woman in relationship called marriage for life, but it's all of humanity united in relationship to the creator God forever and ever and ever. And the chapter right before this, we read, quote, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You were created for the Garden of Eden. Whether you're here and you're a follower of Jesus or nothing of the sort, flat out atheist or another form of spirituality or maybe you're kind of sort of a follower of Jesus but not really or at least not serious. Wherever you're at, you were created for the Garden of Eden, for a life with no letdowns at all, with no disappointments ever. But instead, you were born into a world that is full of letdowns and disappointments. But for those of you who have been saved by Jesus, one day you will live in a garden-like city all over again. So whether you're single or married, lonely or in love, filled with joy and delight and it's 72 degrees outside, or filled right now with pain and disillusionment and heartache and grief, Maybe you're here today and you're single and you so wish to God that you were married. Maybe you're here and you're married and you so wish to God that you were single. (laughs) Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. God sees you. And not only is God with you, but God is at work all around you to the degree that you open up your life to his authorship. To the degree, degree that you put and pull, and lay your life down under the rule, the reign, the kingdom of Jesus, to the degree that you do that, God is at work, and who knows what God is stirring up, not only through the good stuff in your life, but through the hard stuff, not only through success, but through failure, not only through all the stuff you've done right, but maybe, just maybe, even through all the stuff that you've done wrong. Wherever you're at today, here's what you can know for sure, this is life is a gift. All of it. Love, marriage, sexuality, romance, if you're in a relationship, if you're engaged to be married, if you are married, all of that is gift. If you're not food, drink, sight glass coffee. It's really good, by the way. All of this life, it's all a gift. It's not a right. We need to get set free from a heart posture of entitlement and reshape our thinking and our feeling around a heart posture of gratitude. All of this life is a gift. You were created to enjoy it as an act of worship to the God who made you. And so this coming week, do so well. But know this as well. Nothing nothing in this world, at least on this side of resurrection, nothing can fill the void in your heart left by our departure from Eden. Not the best love story, or the best marriage, or the best sex, or success, or a dream, or an accomplishment, or your startup, or whatever it is. None of it. No matter how fantastic it is, it's not God. And so the letdowns will come. The disappointments will come. The sense of inadequacy and insecurity will come. When it does, let marriage be marriage and God be God. Let sexuality be sexuality and God be God. Let success be success and failure be failure and let God be your source of fulfillment and satisfaction and what Jesus called, quote, the life that is truly life. And know that on your horizon as a follower of Jesus is a garden-like city with your address there. That's what's waiting for you. A time when in the language of the prophet Isaiah, sorrow and sighing will flee away. One of my favorite poetic lines in the entire story of God. That sense of sighing you all get when you're like, that sucks. No more. Never again. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. and You will, above all, you will be with God. I'm sure the city will be great. I'm sure the food and the drink and the coffee will be fantastic but better than anything, you will be with God. My guess is that's why the closing paragraph in the Bible, in Revelation, is a prayer that's wrapped up in wedding imagery. To close, read it, skip down to 17. Quote, the spirit and the bride say what? Come. You know, a Jewish bride never knew the exact day of her wedding. She just knew that her lover was coming soon, quote, at an hour she did not expect. So she would live every day with one eye out the window. Is it today? Is it today? With one eye on the horizon waiting. And that's actually a pretty good way to live all of life.